Well, church family, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning we will be in Acts chapter 13, the first 12 verses. And so here's what the Word of the Lord says. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight pass of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that these will not, for us in this place this morning, just be words on a page. I really believe that the Word of God is alive and it's active. And if we've not already understood and discerned what these words have to do with us in 2016, may it be so before this service is over. And Father, I simply ask that Jesus would be exalted. He does reign forever. There is none beside him and as it was in that day when the counterfeit prophet was exposed and he was shown for what he is the blind leading the blind i pray among us today that it's the light of the gospel that shines forth and we are not blind to it we pray in jesus name amen Amen. Well, you may be seated. We're studying through the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Where we left off last week was Peter, right, had miraculously been delivered from prison. Now, uh, you might have expected, this is kind of what, as I was reading along, was expected, after Peter's miraculous delivery, that we just pick up right with Peter. But we don't. As a matter of fact, now the good Dr. Luke shifts his attention, and for the most part, with a few small exceptions, for the most part, for the rest of the book of Acts, the primary person is going to be not Peter, it's actually going to be Paul. And one thing right off the bat that that teaches us is that the kingdom of God is not dependent on one person or one personality. There's only one person who's, who's uh, essential to the kingdom of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So there's no one person that God works through. He works through anybody who's a willing vessel of his, as we see here in Acts chapter 13. Hey, do you know that Friday night, this coming Friday night, are the opening ceremonies of the Olympics? Anybody like the Olympics? I'm kind of into the Olympics. I thought people were into the Olympics until I went to Sunday school and asked if anybody in my Sunday school class was into the Olympics, and nobody except my wife and I were in it. Anybody, raise your hand. You're in. You like the Olympics. All right, so I'm kind of into the Olympics as, as well, and uh, no doubt within the next two weeks, if you're into the Olympics, uh, you'll, you'll, ner- you'll, you'll learn the names of athletes we've never heard of before. I mean, there's some that we know, right? Michael Phelps and so on and so forth, but some are going to step onto the world stage in the next two weeks that we've never heard before. We've never seen them before. We don't yet know their names. But these athletes, as they go to Rio, they don't just show up. They didn't decide two weeks ago to go to the Olympics, right? Uh, nobody said, you know, in June, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to go to the Olympics this year. They've been training, preparing for months, right? They've been up practicing early in the morning when nobody's around. They've been swimming. 
They've been running. They've been eating right for months and months with no renown, right? With no headlines. They're just now about to step onto the world stage in the next two weeks with years backing up of their training. Well, when we get here to Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas, they sort of step out onto the world stage. They're going to be sent out from Antioch, and they're going to be international, global, gospel-taking missionaries. But, but, in the same way we'd be able to say of those Olympic athletes, they don't just show up. As we've been reading through Acts, couldn't you agree with me? I mean, Paul and Barnabas both have proven faithful in little things. Faithful when nobody else was around. Faithful when they're not hundreds gathered to hear them preach. They've been faithful in really, really little things. And as they carry forth the torch of the gospel, these verses underscore the relationship between two vitally important things. And I'm, that's my emphasis this morning comes from two words in verse 2. And what I want us to do is uh, use this text to understand the relationship between these two words. So here we go. Let's read verse 2. And I'm going to see if you can pick up on the two words that I'm going to emphasize. All right, so here we go. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. All right, let's read it one more time. And I want you, you go in and say, uh, all the words are good, by the way. But maybe the two words we're going to emphasize because they have everything to do with one another. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I tried to really read that without emphasizing any of the words. So this time I'm going to emphasize the two words. You ready? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. All right, that's our emphasis this morning is the relationship between worshiping the Lord and working for the Lord, right? Did you know the two go together? The two have a relationship? Uh, well, you probably already guessed it because of the title. I didn't, I mean, the obvious on the screen. So here's the message. Spirit-led worship leads to spirit-led work. Does your worship of God propel you to work for him. Now, it's, it's really important. This is like gospel important that we understand uh, that working flows from worship and it's not the other way around, right? Here's a, here's a verse we say all the time, and I want you to know it. I say it all the time because I think it's one of the clearest um, descriptions of the truth of the gospel that we get in the Bible. Paul wrote it, by the way, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I just want you to hear it, actually 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it's by grace we are saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. Did you hear the word works? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is salvation. This is as important as salvation, that we get the prepositions right, right? We're saved by grace, through faith, unto works. And friends... Your level of worship this morning is directly connected to your understanding of grace. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you don't understand that you're saved by the grace of God, that it's not your work, then your worship is very likely tepid. And when we sing things like, Jesus, you reign forever, if you don't understand grace, it's going to be possible for you to hear those songs and just kind of sit there and have no bearing on your life. But I want you to see here in Acts 13 that as they worship the Lord and then as they purpose to work and serve him, that the two have everything to do with one another. So as is often the case, I'll go in and tell you, I've got three main points, and I'll go in and give them to you. The three points are going to be this. I don't think this will show up on the screen. But the three points are, number one, let's talk about the relationship between worship and work. And secondly, I just want to give you some descriptions of spirit-led worship And then third, I want to give you some descriptions of spirit-led work. Sound pretty simple, right? And that's what we get here in Acts chapter 13. So let's read verses 1 through 3 one more time as we talk about the relationship between worship and work. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And then we get this collection. What, what, What godly leaders they had, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So one thing we can say very clearly is this is not how it should work. This is not how it should work. That we all gather in here, we study the word, we sing these songs, and then we walk out those doors, and everything we did in here has no bearing on what we do out there, right? Can we agree on that? If, if we say and believe certain things in here, it dictates what we actually do out there. In other words, the worship and the work go together. So two real obvious, under this first point, the relationship between worship and work, two really obvious points, but I want you to consider them this morning. Point number uh, uh, one is spirit-led worship urges on spirit-led work. When Julie and I were first married, we moved out to Memphis, Tennessee, and it's kind of a rule if you ever live in Memphis, Tennessee, you have to work for FedEx. FedEx headquarters is in Memphis, Tennessee, and it's kind of an unwritten rule, so I went to work and would work from 10 at night until four o'clock in the morning. And I show up for my first day of work. It was pretty intense. It was um, uh, 2001 and we hadn't gotten to 9-11 yet, but particularly after 9-11, I mean, security just to get out there and it's at the air, it's at the ma- uh, major hub and airplanes are landing all night. And uh, so I get out there for my first and you have to park and then go through a security checkpoint. They get on a bus, they drive you to the hub, go through another security checkpoint, and you finally get there. And by the time I would show up for work that first night, I was exhausted. I mean, it's busy, and it's loud, and it's hectic, and we're going to move boxes and all sorts of things all night long. So the first thing we do is we're going to stretch together. And so they call up the people to stretch, and and this is sort of my strategy is I kind of showed up my first night of work nervous, and I just kind of looked around until I identified one person who looked like they knew what they were doing. So my plan was, I'm just going to do whatever he does. So they said, we're going to go stretch. And so this guy started walking, and I just kind of got, and I started following him. And he got up there, and he started stretching. And I was standing beside him, kind of watching him. And um, he looked out, and I didn't realize. He really did know what he was doing. And the reason he knew what he was doing, because he's called the line captain, right? And the line captain is leading everybody else in the stretching So it's sort of like the setup that we've got this morning. I'm standing here, and all these workers are standing there. But the only problem was I was standing beside of him, right? And it's already to the point where, you know, you always want to make a good first impression. That's over, you know. This is the guy who obviously doesn't know what he's doing. It'd be sort of like if you were visiting and you came to worship with us, and then all of a sudden, uh, those that are leading the singing, you're just standing beside of them. I mean, that's, that's kind of what happened, and I'm trying to figure out how to play it off, and there's really no reason, no, no way to play it off at all, right? So I just kind of eased down, and hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, let's move some boxes, and how are you, sir? And just kind of ease my way to the, to the back. I felt so embarrassed but you know what would have been silly is if we all got out there and we stretched and did all the things and we'd usually do 12 15 minutes of stretching and after the stretching they said all right we're good everybody go home no the whole reason we're stretching is we're preparing to do what we're preparing to work right the stretching and the working go together now as ridiculous as it would be to stretch and then after the stretching that everybody says go home it would be just as absurd to regularly attempt to engage in worship and then never go out and work for the Lord. Does that make sense? I mean, they're praying and they're fasting. And we got bookends here, by the way. If you go back up in verse 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, right? Their work, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, so it's never that we stop doing one in order to do the other. They're, uh, they're, it's like a symbiotic. Is that the right word? I don't know. I just came up with it on the top of my head. Symbiotic relationship between worship and work. What makes for a great worship service, by the way? How do you know if you've attended a great worship service? Well, using Acts 13 and the Word of God as a filter, in some ways, the only way to gauge the effectiveness of a worship service is to understand what happens in the days after, right? Did it propel anybody to do any spirit-led work? Well, uh, many of you, because I've talked to you, are like me, and you've got kind of fascinated, particularly this year, with a basketball player named Steph Curry. 
Steph Curry, who plays for the Golden State Warriors, and he has this reputation for having an unbelievable pregame warm-up, right? So YouTube and Facebook, they got all these videos, and he does this amazing, I mean, it's intense, and it's involved, and he goes through all these sorts of dribbling and all these sorts of shots, and he'll shoot from, like, you know, 100 feet away, and he'll just be swishing these shots, and it just goes on. But the whole reason he's doing that is not just for the warm-up's sake, it's because the game's about to be played. And friends, if, if we're here and we worship the Lord and we exalt his name and we study the word, but then we just go out and it has no bearing on our life, that says something about our worship. That was a problem for the people of God in the... It's always been a problem, but particularly in the days of Isaiah. I want you to turn with me for a moment to Isaiah, prophet in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 1. And what I'd like to do is just read Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 20. And what you'll see is that the Lord is heartbroken. The Lord is um, expressing a very strong message to the people. And see if you can pick up the, what's going on here, right? So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. It's the Lord speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Right? So the people are coming, they're making their sacrifices, they're participating in worship. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. I mean, could the language honestly be any stronger? They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What's he saying? You come and you make sacrifice and you make sacrifice and you lift up your hands and you voice these prayers, but your worship has nothing to do with what you actually do, right? Is that what he's saying? I mean, when, the, when we're not here in this sanctuary and, and, and what we give our attention and our devotion to, do we understand this is what the Lord's saying? But it's not a hopeless message, as it's never with the Lord. Verse 18. This, is a, you know, this might be the first time we come across verses in Isaiah 1 that we're familiar with. But you see, the, the context is, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, it shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken powerful message from Isaiah to the people of God in his day, proclaiming that your worship and your work, your worship and your life have nothing to do with one another. You sing, you keep the traditions, you sacrifice, but it has no effect on how you treat people or what you, or what you do. So real simply, and to this first point, the relationship between worship and work Spirit-led worship urges us on to spirit-led work. And that worship service concluded as they're praying, as they're fasting. They didn't conclude the service and just all go home and say, okay, we're good. We checked that box. No, it says we've got to send people out to take this message forth. And then, to go back to the nature of this symbiotic relationship, spirit-led, not only does spirit-led worship urge us on to spirit-led work, but spirit-led work begins, brings us back to spirit-led worship because here's what will happen and we'll see it all through paul's life he'll get out there and it's hard 
So there's a reason that Paul says you must do the work of an evangelist. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody that didn't want to hear? Ever tried to love somebody who wasn't easy to love? What are you going to find out? It's hard, man. And you've got significant limitations. And there's some things that only God can do, and then there's some things that God requires of you to do. Does that make sense, right? The only person in the room this morning who's not desperate to see a move of God is the person who hasn't tried to work for the Lord at all. You know what I mean? I mean, if you've been out there this week, and you've been sharing the gospel, if you've been loving people, if you've been uh, putting others first, that brings you back here to hear things like, Jesus, you reign forever. That's ballast to our souls, isn't it? Nothing gets you to praying like working for the Lord because you quickly realize your own limitations. So that's the relationship between spirit-led worship and spirit-led work. Secondly, let me just give you some characteristics of spirit-led worship. And here's the first one, and I love it. Is spirit-led worship removes worldly barriers. And here's what I mean by that. Verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, the member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And if you look at those names carefully, what you'll find out is that this is a group of people that had nothing in common apart from Christ. This is a group of people that uh, unless Jesus had changed their life, they would never, ever, ever have found themselves sitting in the same room together. Right? You've got, uh, you've got Barnabas. You've got Simeon, who was called Niger. So you've got a man who's from Cyprus. You've got a man who's from Africa. You've got Lucius of Cyrene. You've got Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Remember last week we talked about Herod's family. And that man who had served in the government of Herod is now singing and worshiping, praying and fasting aside from Saul, whose background is what? A Pharisee. I mean, these are people who would not have been able to sit down together. And now here they are worshiping the Lord and fasting. The ground is level at the cross, isn't it? Amen. We, we have people here in this verse from diverse backgrounds. People that, as far as where they've come from, they don't have a lot in common. And not only do they not have a lot in common, they, they're sort of conditioned by the world to be antagonistic towards one another. But friends, that's one of the great truths of the, of the gospel. Is that it brings people together. So spirit led worship, removes worldly barriers. And also what I'd like to point out is spirit-led worship frees us from worldly priorities. There's another word I'd like to emphasize for a moment here in verse number two. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and, what's your Bible say? Somebody just say it out. Fasting. It doesn't say while they were worshiping the Lord really fast. That's how we often do it. Just worship the Lord really fast and let's get out of here and go on to something else. We've got things to do. No, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Can we do a really, really simple Bible observation? If you're in Acts, I want you to turn back over here to Matthew chapter 6. I just want to make a really, really simple point to you. And something that's been of great conviction in my own life. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting. So you've turned back. If you're in Acts, you just flip back four books and you'll find Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament. And then Matthew 6 is right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest uninterrupted and extended teaching of Jesus recorded in the Bible. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want you to see a sequence here. Matthew Matthew 6, verse 2. We're just going to read phrases. I just want you to see this. Thus, when you give to the needy. All right, that's all I want you to see. When you give to the needy, verse 5, and when you pray, verse 7, and when you pray, right? So we just see, Jesus doesn't say when it comes to giving or praying, he doesn't say, and if you happen to do these things, if you give or if you pray, it's just assumed that a follower of Jesus will do these things. With that in mind, I want you to look at verse 16. What's it say? And when you fast... I just want you to see, according to Jesus, fasting is right on that same level as giving and praying. In his teaching and in his understanding, it's sort of just assumed that fasting will be a regular 
discipline in the life of a believer. And I want you to see in Acts 13, I want you to see in Acts 13, it's while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas. And maybe, maybe, if it's been a long time since you've had a fresh word from the Lord, which will always come from Scripture, by the way, it might be that you've neglected an essential discipline called fasting. Now, let's just ask the obvious question. What is fasting? What does that mean? Let's give you a real simple definition. Fasting is temporarily abstaining from a temporary thing in order to focus more clearly on eternal things. Fasting is temporarily abstaining from a temporary thing in order to focus more clearly on eternal things. Now, the obvious thing when we talk about fasting, we often say is what? What do you often fast from? Food, right? Some of us need to fast from fast food. Probably be a good idea for me. But you fast from food. So on a daily basis, you probably eat. And most of us probably eat three meals a day. So what fasting would mean is in the regular course of my life, in the regular course of my day, instead of taking that lunch hour, for example, and going to eat, I'm going to use that same hour. And what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to, is I'm going to pray. So I've got a natural physical appetite that desires food. And temporarily, we're, we're all on the same page here, right? Temporarily. I'm going to fast from that in order. So fasting is a gift of God that he's allowed us to have in our lives. That if you ever come to a point in your life where you're just dry spiritually, where you're not hearing much from the Lord, fasting is a good habit to pick up and say, okay, I'm going to fast from this. But it doesn't just have to be food, right? Let me give you some helpful things in your spiritual life that you might want to fast from. We ready? Your phone. That'd be a good thing to fast from. Grabs your attention. Right? Got to have it. What's the message? What's the message? And you keep looking at messages all day, and it's real simple. If you're constantly looking at your phone and messages from your phone, no matter how good your apps are or what the game is and so on and so forth, it, it's not possible to keep focusing on that and then perhaps in your life focus on the Word of the Lord, right? It makes sense, right? I might need to fast from my phone. Um, I'll jot it down a few things. Maybe a specific something uh, techno- technology-wise. Maybe you need to fast from Facebook. Maybe you need to fast from Pokemon Go. Maybe you need to fast from television, right? Here's a a discerning question that might lead you to say, here's what I need to fast from. What in your life are you devoting time and attention to at the expense of the word and prayer? That's the easiest question to ask. To say, that's probably what I need to fast from, right? Something just got me, it's not, not necessarily a bad thing. Or necessarily a sinful thing, but it's something that's time-consuming and does have a level of devotion in your life. Again, the first thing many of us would think of is, so, but it's two things, right? It's not just, I'm going to lay this aside. See, when it comes to fasting, most of us, this is as far as we get. It's not just, I'm going to lay something aside. It's this, I'm laying something aside so that I can pursue more of the Lord, right? So we don't want to just check our fasting box. All right, I gave up Facebook for today. I went 34 consecutive minutes and didn't look at Facebook today. No, 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 no. It's not just that. I'm laying this aside. Maybe it's a daytime television program. Maybe it's a, uh, uh, that I've, uh, you know, I'll just let the Lord lead you in, in that regard. But here's what I'm devoted to that I'm just going to lay aside. And some of us, parenthetically, need to lay aside some things permanently. Amen. So some things don't need to just be laid aside for a season. They need to be laid aside permanently. But if it's food or some other, in order that, now instead of that hour spent at lunch, I'm going to get in here to Acts 13 and I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to think upon it. Or I'm going to purpose instead of spending my time that way that I'm going to finally go have that conversation with that person that I've been needing to, to have. Fasting is an overlooked weapon in the Christian's arsenal to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Fasting is a, is a perspective reorienter. I know that's not grammatically correct, but that's what fasting is, right? Just allows you to get the compass out and say, okay, here, here's where I am, here's where I'm going. It's a devoting time to get my perspective right, because I don't know if this happens in your life. It happens in mine. I find myself stringing together several days and sometimes weeks, and if I'm not careful, a whole month, where I'm not really taking inventory and saying, here's where I'm actually 
headed. That's a way to waste your life, by the way. So fasting, fasting helps us get reoriented. So instead of worldly things getting a small slice of our life, because we're so devoted to Christ, it's often we're so devoted to worldly things that we give a small slice of our life to Christ. And fasting, again, is just a way to recalibrate that. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Sometimes fasting in your life gives room for the Holy Spirit to speak through the Word. So Spirit-led worship, some characteristics, it removes worldly barriers. Here's people from all different backgrounds. They've come together around the gospel. Secondly, it frees us from worldly priorities, and that's what I mean by fasting. Fasting helps identify and remove worldly priorities. And then one other quick one, uh, characteristic of Spirit-led worship, is it sends people out to fulfill the Great Commission, right? If worshiping's not leading us to fulfill the Great Commission, We've got to ask who it is we're worshiping because Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We don't want to be guilty of worshiping a God of our own design who we tell him what to do. Spirit-led worship is always pointing to Christ and reminding us of what he's told us to, to do. The Spirit said, the Spirit said, the Holy Spirit is willing to speak to us. The Spirit's willing to give us direction. Have you ever had someone say to you, you know what, God's leading me to do this. I feel God leading me in my life to do this. How do you know? Right? How do you know? How do you know God's leading you to do that? No, I don't mean this in a judgmental spirit. But sometimes we just adopt that phrase and plop it down on whatever we really want to do. And we just say, well, God's really leading me to I've, I've had people tell me all sorts of things. Now, let me give you a few uh, biblical parameters of when you say, God's leading me to do this. What we'll be able to do now is to see spirit-led worship leads to spirit-led work. So I want to give you some characteristics of spirit-led work that will serve uh, as maybe some parameters in your life to say, is this really what the spirit is leading me to do? Does that make sense? So let's talk about some characteristics of spirit-led work now. Y'all all all right? We good? All right, let's do it. So number one, spirit-led work is often, most often done through gospel partnerships. And here's what I mean by that. Very frequently, if somebody ever says, you know, God's leading me to do this, first question you need to ask is, well, who else is he leading to do that with you, right? Because there are not many times, friends, where you get in that book and you read that the Spirit of God is leading people to do something, and it's just that one person. And that's been true from the get-go. The Holy Spirit comes along and says, set apart. I find it interesting that he says Barnabas first. We would have thought it would have been Saul. But set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. It's the nature of God and the Spirit of God that he uses partnerships. How many partners can you think of in the, gospel, in, in the Scriptures, right? If I say Moses, who do you say? If I say David, you got some options, but you might say Jonathan. If I say Elijah, you say Elisha. All right. If I say Paul, you say Barnabas. I want to put a picture up here on the screen of a basketball player. It's not Steph Curry. Let's go around. But it's a guy that I like cheering for a little bit. And then, well, we won't go into that. It's Michael Jordan, right? Now, however you might argue, whatever you want to say, he's one of if not the greatest basketball player ever, right? Now, Michael Jordan came into the NBA. He was a rookie in uh, 1985. 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. Six years he played. Scored a lot of points. But do you know how many NBA championships he won? Zero. For all his talent, for all his skill, for all his ability, he'd get, and very frequently, that's why I chose this picture, team called the Detroit Pistons. Does anybody know how many basketball players are on the court for a team at a time? Five. I want you to look at that picture. And what do you notice? Michael Jordan's on offense, and he's got one, two, three, four, right? Vinnie Johnson, Joe Dumars, and some other guys, right? Now, the Detroit Pistons won NBA championships, right? They won it in 89 and 90. And Michael Jordan kept coming up against the Detroit Pistons year after year after year. And for all his talent, for all his ability, he'd find himself in a situation like that. My guess is, I didn't see the, what came before, he drove to the basket looking to shoot, and then the entire team collapsed on him. And he's just looking for someone to pass it to, right? And then 
something changed. And that's my second picture. Here's what changed. All right. So there's a, another basketball player that Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, had on his team. And it's a guy named Scottie Pippen. Now, Scottie Pippen was not as talented as Michael Jordan. But Scottie Pippen was a great basketball player. In fact, he was particularly great as a defensive basketball player. Very frequently, as the Chicago Bulls emerged as one of the great teams, you'd find Scottie Pippen, he'd guard Magic Johnson in the 91 NBA Finals. The next year, he'd guard, he's always guarding one of the other team's best players. And then after Scottie Pippen emerged as a really great player, let's see what happened after that is the next picture. Six NBA championships, right? 91, 92, 93. Then Michael said, I'll play some baseball. Took a few years off. 96, 97, 98. Michael Jordan never won without Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen, try as hard as he may, came pretty close. He never won without Michael Jordan. What were they? They're partners. Partners together. Now, when we get over here to Acts 13, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, Saul, we might pay, Paul, we might be able to say this. He's kind of the Michael Jordan of evangelists, right? I mean, he's faithful. He's a great preacher. He's, he's, he's a great reasoner. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, in his book on Paul's, Paul's life, writes, Barnabas, talking about their partnership, Barnabas was raised in Cyprus, a rural island setting. Saul came from Tarsus, an intellectual center. He'd been to school in Jerusalem on the disciplines of logic. Barnabas was an encourager. Saul, a gifted preacher and scriptural scholar. Barnabas flowed with love and great compassion. Saul demonstrated remarkable grit and unwavering determination. Barnabas graciously reached out to the downtrodden and needy. Saul was naturally drawn to the intellectually curious. You see how God can take those two different personalities, different sets of giftedness. God never says, here's just somebody, go get him." whether it's Billy Graham who had George Beverly Shea, or if you go in and study the great uh, people that God has used, there's very frequently a partner, very frequently a partner who doesn't get maybe as much credit or renown, but who's just like Scottie Pippen was indispensable for the triumph. Now, uh, God's not much interested in Paul and Barnabas going and winning a, an NBA championship or a Vince Lombardi trophy. He's got greater trophies, the souls of men, and that's why he's sent them out. But marker number one, spirit-led work is often can be distinguished that it's done through gospel partnerships. Secondly, spirit-led work is done in hard places. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to the beach and relaxed and kicked back for a while. Now they go down to Seleucia which might not mean much to us in 2016, but in that day, it's a hard place to go. It's not where anybody would want a vacation or take it easy. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus, which is an island. You know what they did in islands in those days? They just put everybody on an island they didn't know what to do with. It's too wild, too, too, uh, too hard of a case. Just sell them, uh, chain them up, put them on Cyprus, and leave. Just leave them there. And that's where Barnabas goes. And that's where Saul goes. Places with no existing church, no existing gospel witness. The Spirit leads you to hard places. For some of us, the hardest place might be right in our very own home, right? Hardest place to share the gospel is within the four walls of my own house or right in your own school, right in your own workplace. But others of us, the Spirit will lead to hard places overseas. I really believe this. I really believe there are people sitting in this room right now that a year from now, two years from now, you're not going to be in this physical location. You're going to be to the... uh, uh, four corners of the earth, taking the gospel. And as I was preparing for this, I, I was reminded for some reason, and uh, I've got a very clear memory. I was standing about here preaching, and I looked about over here, and I'm not pointing anybody out in particular. I just saw a young man. He was sitting over there while I was preaching. This is six some odd years ago. And he, I just kind of saw him, and then I saw him the next Sunday, and then we struck up a friendship, and we struck up a relationship, and he ended up, after he'd moved to the area, became a part of our church. His name's Chris Sykes, and uh, then his wife, Sarah, she was right there with him. And every, every conversation, every conversation that I had with Chris and Sarah Rose, here's how it went. Uh, Brandon, could you be praying for fill in the blank? I talked to them this week about Jesus, shared the gospel with them. Would you just pray that they'd come to faith? Hey, Brandon, I was in class this week, and the guy sitting beside me, he was, uh, so, and every conversation I had with them was about Christ. 
and we've sent them out. You see what it says there in verse 3? Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, a spirit-led church, this is an American mindset. American mindset is often the best churches are the churches that can gather the greatest number of people in the same place at the same time. That's the great church. But they just said, you take your leaders, your key people, and send them out. So, so one way I want to understand it is the health of a church isn't necessarily the large number of people they can gather together at one time, but who they send out for the great commission. Amen? Spirit-led work is often done in hard places. Paul and Barnabas, the traveling's hard. They're not traveling first class. I mean, to go to these places, you get your map out. First missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, you'll see it's hard. Third, what would you pick up real quick is, is that spirit-led work is going to be opposed by the darkness. Verse 8, But Elamus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So just remember this. Just remember this in your life. Being opposed by the darkness is a mark that you're doing spirit-led work. Sometimes, again, our American mindset, any opposition, oh, this must not be the will of the Lord, right? This is too hard. Uh, it might actually be confirmation. It is to keep taking the gospel, keep, to keep taking the light out. What, what's, being, what's the battle being fought over, by the way? This man's soul, Sergius Paulus. He's with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, right? He's a government leader with intelligence. And Saul takes the gospel to him. You pray for your government leaders. Here's a good prayer. Oh God, would you lead them to seek to hear the word of God? Acts chapter 13, verse 7. Battles being fought over a man's soul. Parenthetically, real quick, I often hear it said, if you don't vote, you can't complain afterwards. I'd like to put it this way for Christians. If you aren't praying and fasting for our nation, you don't get to complain either. Amen? If you aren't loving people enough to serve them and share the gospel with them, you don't get to complain. Right? Paul and Barnabas are traveling through wicked cities. These are wicked places full of overt and appalling sin. Here, here's an here's a ungodly, unrighteous, likely demon-led magician, and he's the advisor to the proconsul. These are wicked places full of appalling sin. But you don't hear them uh, just throw up their hands and say, ah, well, let's go somewhere else. They say, actually, that's the very place we need to go into. You don't hear them complaining much. The remedy for cultural decay is the gospel. So, when you agree with this, it seems foolish to me for someone to bemoan the decaying culture around us without actively proclaiming the remedy, right? We don't want to get stuck in that trap, friends of just complaining about the decaying culture around us when the only remedy for the decaying culture is what? The gospel, the gospel, if we're not going to take it forth. And then the last characteristic of spirit-led work is spirit-led work is focused on the souls of people. I love how Paul, when he's confronted by the darkness, doesn't back down. Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Not very seeker-friendly, is it? You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, you will, not, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Inevitably, blind leaders will be exposed for who they are. But I want you to see the spirit-led work is, the, is focused on the souls of people. The very next verse, then the proconsul believed. The proconsul believed. So can we take a Holy Spirit perspective on this scene there's a collection of believers in Antioch remember that's where they first called Christians God had done a great work in Antioch and man God was moving in great power and they're worshiping and they're uh, praising God and they're fasting and the Holy Spirit said I want you to set apart 
for me, Paul, uh, Paul, Paul and Barnabas. We'll get their names right. I want you to set apart for, them, for the work, right? Not for the life of ease and comfort, but for the work that I've got for them. And then they take this arduous journey. And they travel all over the place. They're opposed. And then we get down here and it says the proconsul believed. And don't you think that's what the Holy Spirit had in mind when he came over here and said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas. There's somebody over here. What's his name? I should know it. I've read this enough. What's his name? Sergius Paulus. It's probably how they started their conversation. Your name kind of sounds like my name. A man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Do you see, as you read through Acts, is it the Acts of the Apostles? Yes, but it's also the Acts of the Holy Spirit. This was the Holy Spirit's goal to begin with. This is the goal of Acts 13, 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, he said, set them apart. So a couple of concluding applications real, um, real quick. And, you know, you don't have to write this down. You don't have to stand up and say these things. But I'm just going to ask, on the basis of Acts 13, a couple of responsive questions, if you will. Here's question number one. Who is your gospel partner? Who's your gospel partner? You got somebody? All right. So um, if, if, um, if you don't, that's a probably a good place to start. Good place to start if your um, um, husband say, well, I want my wife to be my gospel partner. That's what we're trying. I don't do a great job of leading uh, this all the time, but man, Julie's a glorious gospel partner. I'll just tell you that. Have a prayer partner, someone who loves people and cares about people. So, so my family is not just in Rocky Mountain, just of, hey, we're just going to exist. Our family needs to be knit together that we're gospel partners. We've got a purpose to love people, to take the gospel for. So, so is there somebody, if you don't, some of you say to me, oh, my gospel partner is such and such. We, we get together, we pray, we love each other, pray for each other. Um, I, I think a, this is a recurring theme in Acts, so we've talked about it before. And I think the way we said it before is you, you don't just want friends who are Christians, you want Christian friendships, right? So who's your gospel partner? And if you don't have one, would you be willing to pray and consider who would make a good one? And are you willing to take a step, an initiative step, saying, hey, would you be my gospel partner? And what does that mean? It just means, hey, we're devoted to, to loving people, and maybe you, the, the two of you have got a third friend who doesn't know Jesus, and we're going to meet with them, we're going to pray for them, and we're going to share the gospel with them. When I go to the gym on the rare occasions that I do, I often go by myself. You know what's easy to do when you go to the gym by yourself? It's easy to say on the front end, I'm going to do four sets of such and such. And if you're by yourself, after you've done two sets of such and such, you know what's really easy? That's enough for today. I'm done. And walk out, right? This makes sense. It's just logical. If you, if you say, I'm going to take the gospel to somebody, and you're just doing it by yourself, do you know what's really easy? Hey, I'm going to meet so-and-so for lunch, and we're going to talk about Jesus. And then the appetizer come, and a little thought comes into your mind. You know what it says? That's ah, not a good time. It's not a good time. We'll do it some other time. But now you've got two people. There's something called accountability. My favorite Proverbs. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. We need. That's what the church is, friends, right? So who's your gospel partner? What's the hard place that you're trying to go? What's the hard place that you're trying to go? Again, it might not be Seleucia or Cyprus or Salamis or uh, these other, other places. It might be my living room. It might be my brother. It might be uh, my workplace. Where's the hard place I'm trying to go? And I want you to put these two things together. Can my gospel partner go with me to these places? Are you prepared for opposition? So this will be the last thing I say. Um, I want you to see the opposition comes. After the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas and send them out, and before Proconsul Paulus believes, did you see what came in the middle? That's where the opposition came, right? That's where the opposition came. So it would work one of two ways. Oh, man, we're excited. The Spirit sent us out, and we step out, and there comes the opposition. Oh, man, that was hard. Let's go back to Antioch, right? And there they are back worshiping the Lord in Antioch. But then what wouldn't have happened? We've said this so many times, I'll just say it again. I think one of the things that I think one of the things that drew the proconsul to faith in Jesus is he saw Paul and Barnabas 
who were willing to endure hardship and strong opposition in order to take the gospel to him. We must be prepared for opposition. So uh, the protections for that, by the way, is we really believe the Holy Spirit has sent us out, and we are really focused on the souls of men and women. If you focused on your own comfort or your own convenience, opposition comes, and we're, we're done for, right? We are not saved by grace, through faith, unto sitting around. We're saved by grace, through faith, unto work. So just hear it one more time, and then we'll pray. It's by grace. And who wrote this, by the way? Paul did. We're saved. It's by grace you're saved through faith. It's the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know what the opposite of boasting is? Worshiping. Worshiping is the opposite of boasting. So we don't boast, we worship. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we ought to walk in them. Well, let's stand together and we'll pray together. And my encouragement to you is to let the study and the worship of God through the preaching of his word lead to some serving and some working. We'll pray together. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, out of this uh, sermon, some gospel partnerships will, uh, will develop. Maybe it's people who've had friendships for years. They've just never quite taken that step to say, hey, let's uh, uh, joy and love our friendship, but let's, let's be on mission together. Let's be a little more purposeful together in what we do. Paul, for all his spiritual giftedness, he needed Barnabas. Help us to see that we need each other. Father, I pray for anybody who's in the midst of perhaps some discouragement because they've met some opposition. They've met some harsh words. They've met some bar Jesus type of people who opposed them. God, the the scripture says of Paul, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Father, help us to know that's the remedy for encountering the opposition, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that for some people in the room this morning, the discipline of fasting would not be for somebody else. As of today, that's a discipline that they're going to adopt. There are going to be some things that they lay aside so that they can search you in the scriptures. They can have moments of stillness and reflection and quiet, some seasons of recalibrating what they're doing in their lives, what their families are doing, what direction they're heading. And that we're not just... Uh, allowing life to set the pace for us we're allowing the word of god to set the pace for our life and that these essential things are not forgotten things help us to resolve some things during the invitation we pray in jesus name amen